Hi there, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. You can find out more at fantasy-animation.org as well as via our social media channels on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. If you like what you see, then please do support the show by subscribing, liking and reviewing the show. A quick written review, five stars, would be really, really helpful. It helps make the visibility of the programme even more. It helps us reach more listeners and it helps justify what we're doing to our employers. Um, So please, please take a minute out of your life to help the show. It would really help us create more content for you. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy the latest episode. Hi again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holliday. Chris, this is the year where we make amends. We have uh, dabbled in franchises in the past, and we've started quite a lot of them, but we've yes. got about one film into many of them and then yep. stopped. I think this is the year where we clean up our mess and we fix the problem. So today, listeners, we will be doing Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, the second in the Harry Potter franchise. We have done the Sorcerer's slash Philosopher's Stone. Um, find it in the archive. By all means, start there before you listen to this recording. Uh, and we do have more Harry Potter films to follow in our recording schedule. So we're going to get this we're going to get this thing done Chris but yeah. on the chamber we've got a very special guest I'll introduce in just a second to help us do that but just on the chamber of secrets Chris any quick thoughts on 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 the status of VFX animation all things you know computery that you like to talk about what's going on with this film that you might want to um, keep our keep what listeners might want to think about as we have this conversation that, well, com- the computery stuff definitely sounds like something that I would talk about. Um, I would say that I- I'm really interested in, in um, this Harry Potter and the Temple of Doom. Sorry, Chamber of Secrets. Um, so I'd like to I'd like to talk about that. Um, but no, that I've got a few little notes on, of course, Dobby, and I think there's something significant mm-hmm. about the film's 2002ness, which links to perhaps some conversations we've had when we've done. Um, Another franchise that we've not finished, which is Lord of the Rings. So a bit on that. I'm also I'd also like to talk a lot about the flying Ford Anglia, Anglia, and the representation of London and particularly King's Cross. I'm increasingly fascinated by King's Cross, St Pancras. Um, it's sort of as a space of magic, and and so I, I'm going to go on a little bit of a detour, I guess, this this episode. And yes, I'll talk about Dobby slash Gollum, but I will also sure. talk about King's Cross and and also I think VFX about being seen. I think there's something really interesting about the car as a sort of visible VFX that in the film itself there's discussions about bringing the world of magic into disrepute because one is seeing the effect so I think there's something interesting about yeah. that Cool. Looking forward to all that. I've got, you know, again, I've got the distinction between Dobby and Gollum. I've got uh, <laughs> branding, because uh, with our guest's uh, interest in mind, and world building, and identities of, of different worlds, and tone, and the relationship between imagination, tone, fantasy, and childhood. Oh, we've got lots to unpack. We better get going. So, yeah. 
to help us do all that, don't worry, it's not just us two. We have a very special guest with us today, um, Professor uh, Jusna Kapoor. Uh, Jusna is a professor of cinema and media studies um, at the University of Southern Illinois. Um, she also works in the sociology department. Her research and teaching interests include Marxist feminist theory of media, arts and culture, the politics of labour, class, race and sexuality in neoliberalism, uh, contemporary Indian media and culture, the history and theory of the documentary, um, third cinema, and global children's media culture. She's the author of two uh, key books in this regard. There's The Politics of Time and Youth in Brand India, uh, and Coining for Capital, Movies, Marketing, and the Transformation of Childhood. She's also the co-editor of Neoliberalism and Global Cinema, Capital Culture, and Marxist Critique. So... Justna, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, very excited to have this conversation with the two of you. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited yeah. to have it with you too. Um, right, where shall we start? Let's start. Um, you've written on Harry Potter. It, it comes up in your writing a few times. Let's start with, with, with what angle we're looking at Harry Potter today through, because I think you've got a particular um, set of interests that, that complement, but, but also kind of take us in a new direction um, to think about the franchise. So let's start with, you know, you, you approach these things from the perspective of kind of Marxist critical cultural critique, uh, and particularly in relation to children's culture. So just unpack some of that for our listeners who perhaps might know some of these words, but not all of them. Okay. Um, just a little background. Um, I started thinking very deeply about the relationship between childhood and capital in the 90s when I had two young kids in that decade. Um, and so it it really uh, got me thinking very deeply about how childhood was actually being uh, reinvented. So we were watching these uh, films like, you know, so Home Alone was uh came a year before my first child was born. Uh, but we were seeing in these films, children looking and acting like adults and uh, adults acting and looking like children, um, and sort of commodification of childhood, which is that there was this whole like range of things you could buy for kids, stores like Toys R Us and all of that. And at the same time, benefits for children or social protections around children were being eviscerated. So this is the Clinton era in the United States. Uh, I had been in the US, uh, I, was, I was a grad student, I was still new to the country. And so I think like I could sort of, I, I came to know capitalism in a very intimate way, not, you know, as I, I'd known it in a different context uh, growing up in India, but sort of, seeing the the seductions of consumer culture were new interesting right? um and so uh, what i saw happening in the 90s was uh that at the conservative level the conservatives on both sides so i would call them both the right so the marketing executives and so on were saying children are no different from adults we should be able to market to them just you know, like we market to adults. So the regulations on television uh, were uh, were removed. The other hand, the conservatives were saying, this is terrible, children, you know, women are starting to go to work, the family's coming apart, we need stricter regimens around uh, children. So 
on the surface, it seems like contradictory. What's going on with these conservatives? And on the one hand, they want to protect childhood, and on the other, they want to sell to to children. And I saw that contradiction as a sort of fundamental contradiction. But the basic thing that was common across was that children were no different from adults. Nobody deserves a free lunch. That's true. So everyone should be able to take care of themselves, including children. So what we were seeing in the movies was a kind of rehearsal for what was actually happening in society. And this, as a young mother, that really disturbed me. And because you kind of are seeing what it actually means uh, that children don't deserve indulgence or protection. It's, it's sort of very visceral. Um, so I think that's the point from where I started was the, the relationship of capital to children is that children, that protections given to children are going to be withdrawn while childhood becomes a commodity that is anybody who can purchase it can experience it because I, I was really interested in in reading your stuff on Harry Potter and the kind of commercialization of children's culture. How I suppose what struck me before the the the, the Harry Potter stuff, if you like, was the, the the points that you make around kind of what cinema is looking like in this period. And you say that yes. that um, you know, and you mentioned Home Alone and and uh, its sequel. But a lot of the films where you say, well, you know, there's the importance of the children or the family film are often at well you mentioned the lion king and earlier on in one of your pieces for for um jump cut you talk about toy story so it's really interesting and fantasy obviously is, is central to that. so it's really interesting that that your examples i suppose with our with our boring academic hats on it's like well you're talking about family films and children's films but you're also talking about animation and alex would say yes but you're also talking about fantasy so it's really interesting what you say where we're actually dealing with a topic that is that's perhaps the strongest bond that connects fantasy films often being animated animated films leaning on fantasy children's films often being both of those things fantasy films and animated films often being geared or being understood critically and culturally as for children so it's really interesting this discussions around high concept um children uh, high concept cinema children's um cinema the family film that just seems right for this kind of you know, the, 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 it's, it's in the Venn diagram between yeah. fantasy and animation, really. The stuff that you're kind of talking about, think, and, and as you started talking about the commercialization, of course, I went to Toy Story anyway because of the way that that mm -hmm. film was sold, but also the tie ins that the film then prompts. Um, so I think this is really interesting. And I know that, you know, Alex is, is, yeah. is written on Hook, for example, um, and interested in Hook oh. around it. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a really intriguing sort of, yeah point of collision so I, I don't think we've spoken about a lot actually on the on the podcast really so chris yes so what was happening in the 90s and i think how this relates very deeply with animation when we look at uh, children hmm. is like a reconceptualization of the relationship children have with toys yeah so if we think of animation as basically animating an object and uh, you know, giving life to it, breathing life into it through narratives that are you know that you produce. Mm. So children have always, in that sense, animated toys, and they've made toys, right? And you know, they've picked up anything and made it into a toy. 
I think what's so striking with the commercialization of childhood, with invent, with telling them that the way to be is to be a consumer, is that they they're they're being told even with Harry Potter buy this collector's item, which was also with Beanie Babies, like these two books that came in the middle uh, between the fourth and the fifth. Harry Potter, they were like Harry Potter's notes, notebooks. And mm -hmm. Buy these as collector items, meaning speculate in the future when you will sell this in the market. Mm -hmm. um, and that was that's that mugglish reality, you know, where you think of everything in terms, like play itself is being transformed from keeping things in their boxes properly so that you can sell them in in the market at a at a later time um and i think in some ways animation becomes actually more and more naturalistic or realistic and just before we uh, so for me uh, chris columbus's 1 and 2 part 1 and the the two first films are more like video games they're more like seeing how things can be animated on a screen. Whereas I think the third film does open up space and time in a way that the first two don't. But the, the last thing I wanted to say is when you change the relationship of children to toys as toys are commodities, um, these, these stories become commercials for things you can buy. So you can buy everything that is there in the Harry Potter you know, one. You can buy the the broom, the <laughs> kiddish thing. You can buy a bed sheet. So I I have this experience. I had a student uh, see one of Miyazaki's films. I was teaching a class on uh, children and cinema, and the student said, "Where can I buy this?" And I was like, "No, you can't buy this." object from the film and it was like they, the, the whole thing had completely changed mm -hmm. um so you yeah so owning these commodities but not disturbing them not breaking them and not making any kind of new thing out of it which in a way like kind of deadening the imagination of the relationship children would have to play yeah. It's it's also actually now as you say that and thinking about the timeline of when Chamber of the Secrets Chamber of Secrets comes out, which is t 2002, quite a lot of what you're talking about is it's not even um, you can buy this. It's actually imagine if you could buy this. A lot of the aesthetic of the film, which has then been codified and commercialised by the fact you now can buy it, but but at the time we didn't have. Harry Potter world. We didn't have the shop at King's Cross Chris is referring to. We didn't have these theme park spaces or, I mean, I can remember as um, when these films came out, you know, the, 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 the sweets that the, the kids are eating slowly start coming out. The, the, the broomstick yes. start, the merchandise kind of follows ancillary to the films as they always do. And it takes a bit of time. It's a bit sluggish. The market's a bit sluggish. So actually, it, it's 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 also it's it's about it's not only the denial of the imagination. It's almost a corruption of the imagination because a lot of the imaginative spirit of these movies, particularly these early movies, and it hadn't struck me till I read your work um, how apparent this is. Is a lot of 
how fun it would be if I could own this, if I could own this broomstick, mm-hmm. if I could buy these mm-hmm. sweets. And then then the commercial and Siri activity that follows seems kind of makes the fantasy makes the fantasy true. Now you can buy it. Um, so there's almost an in, in, an in-between stage between what you're talking about even there where where the fantasy of the movie is being used to stimulate commercial desire, not just son of a more kind of abstract desire. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think the first two really are setting up uh, children to buy those mm. things. And, um, and in that, they actually uh, take away the magic of the books. Like, I, I really did love uh, both Harry Potter, the, the first two, because it seemed to go against the grain of like this kind of cinema, right? which was like, there is really, uh, there is no magic when the toys in Toy Story become real. They're just talking about like, they're like little middle managers who are, you know, talking about plastic corrosion and how to stay together and not become obsolete and Beanie Babies retire and so on. But Harry Potter, uh, it it constructs this notion of magic, the possibility of another sort of world where children learn from each other. There are some adults, there are all sorts of adults, but there are also adults who know, adults who are ready to die for you. I mean, the mother dying for Harry in the first, the parents dying for Harry in the first one, and in the second, um, Dumbledore comes to the rescue at the end. And, you know, and what is evil is if you go for pure blood and that that's what's evil so that the story actually is very mythic it kind of uh, brings these myths that we have in contemporary terms um so whereas home alone the parents are not bad they just forgetful they just forget the kid and you know here they 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 die for the child and i think so that there was this magic in the book which was then simplified with the films. And the third one that does go into the, the magic part. So like with Chambers of um, Secrets, the whole beginning, which is always same that it's Harry's birthday and everybody just ignores him and humiliates him. Uh, in the book, uh, Rowling really does draw it out that uh, you know, till the point where finally the owl comes in and then the masons run out and it's a barn owl. In the film, it's it's simplified. Like the, the real sort of emotional tenor of the story is simplified with this emphasis on objects. So it's, so it's part of what you're saying there is that is that this commercialization because there's there's bits of that in the books isn't there i can certainly remember all the broomstick mm-hmm. chatter and there's lots of oh now harry's got a better broomstick stuff and the, and the sweets yeah. and all this sort of stuff so it's not not there in the books but you're saying that kind of part of the problem is the way the film the, the way these books get adapted is obviously they get um they get simplified so that the whole narrative can be fit in and what's sacrificed is is i don't know tonal complexity and what we get instead is a kind of set of spectacle 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 is the thing that kind of is replaced with nuanced right we get we get we get the same scene but the emphasis is instead on the effect the owl the 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 the, the moment of visual pleasure rather than um 
character relations yeah. plot, the kind of more kind of yes. interpersonal stuff. Mm-hmm. And and is right. that is that does that go throughout the movie then? Is 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 that is that a trend you see throughout the Chamber of Secrets more broadly? Well, I was glad Chris mentioned Dobby because I think Dobby does come out as a sympathetic yeah. character. There's if there is someone you have a little sympathy with, you know, who you can identify with, rather than the spectacle. Like, yeah, okay, let's see this owl. Let's see the stairs. Let's see this. You know, let's see the nimbus. Um, Let's have the Quidditch there scene. Uh, let's yeah. see. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, like at the end, when Malfoy kicks Dobby, then you feel like sort of, yeah, like he should be rescued. So there's some heart mm. to it. Should we talk I'm, about? I'm yeah. curious what Chris thinks about Dobby. Yeah, yeah, we should talk about Dobby because I, 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 it did not strike me until we watching this movie that, of course, 2002 is the year where two CGI grey gnomes capture everyone's hearts. Uh, Gollum, of course, from Lord of the Rings, who we can talk to on another podcast. But, but now we'll talk about Dobby. So it's it's an interesting character because I, I would agree with you. I think Dobby is the is the character that kind of feels fleshed out and of course there's no flesh on the screen yes. so uh so chris uh what were your thoughts on dobby as our uh, as our as our vfx uh, uh, expert <laughs> well <laughs> well i would say it's, it's funny that we're talking about the characters of harry potter because i also you know i think the characters is often we can talk about the magic and the, and the fantasy sure. but I, I always felt that the characters who was going to be there's the there's the range of different characters and i think one of the later films when you get these kind of competitions and tri wizard tournaments and all these competing school it really fleshes out the world through different kinds of characters and i think star wars is the is certainly the same and, and lord of the rings really character driven franchises um but as as well as being spaces of, of vfx as well but i'd forgotten that the Dobby was was in this one. I, and I was getting a bit confused between. I, th- I was trying to think: uh-huh. is this the first time we've seen Quidditch? No, that's in the first film, and and all the different the beats that that one does in these films, the the the, the generic scenes, the returned, the bit before the return to Hogwarts, the first class, the new teacher that's always like quite unquote the villain. But the extra bit to this is who's the British actor who's going to be cast in it? So these films have, <laughs> a, have a kind of these films have an extra layer of characterization because there's the real real pleasure in in who's joining who's joining the franchise and you get that because of the way that the the films follow the school years it just gives them the perfect excuse gives rolling gives whoever's directing it david yates um columbus um curon gives the excuse to introduce the new teacher of the new year or the new and that and that structure is really conducive to bringing in all these new characters dobby is this really iconic character that doesn't sit within that structure because he's essentially part of part of the intrusive fantasy if i if i understand the term from alex correctly that he's the he's the he's the he's the magic that shouldn't be there he's the and obviously that plays out in in the way that the film is produced he's not really there it is a tennis ball on a stick and all this kind of stuff but but his intrusion into the world of of Privet Drive happens really early on, much earlier on than I remembered, and he's he's initially really disruptive in a way that I hadn't hadn't really remembered too. Um, so I think he's an, yeah he's he's an interesting go to one because he kind of connects the film up to to something like Lord of the Rings and this moment of of VFX integration that was kind of convincing and three dimensional and felt fleshed out. Um, and he's one of the one of one of the digital characters in one of three or four 
and maybe slightly less digital characters where there's real interaction so whereas some characters like the basilisk or i suppose even even the the, sp- the big spider which is animatronic um mm. you get something like um dobby which feels that feels really connected to, to to Harry, where they're kind of fighting with each other, and and I felt that way with Gollum as well when we did Lord of the Rings. This idea that they're not just coexistent in a scene, but you just kind of know that they're always going to be separate. There's the classic oil and water that they can make, they can look like they're going to mix, but they'll never mix. Whereas actually, the right. the film tries to make make Gollum feel really material by having a consequence on the world that he's tangent that he when he bangs his head, he it sounds like a a, a three-dimensional heavy object so i think that yeah the, the the intrusion is not just an intrusion of fantasy but it seems like he's having a material aspect on the conditions of that fantasy world and also uh, of the real world sorry and also harry himself that they're actually they're kind of doing more than just sharing a scene they're they're kind of impacting each other and i think that's where the success of the character lies same with with Gollum as well i think the sort of integration of the, the mm. hobbits and, and so yeah i yeah a landmark i would say in the film's 2002-ness definitely Dobby's also got a kind of... Now, I haven't read the books for quite a few years, so correct me if, if perhaps I'm going barking up the wrong tree here, but to me, D- Dobby also struck me as having a, a far more... Um, in the books, he's quite a pathetic creature, and I mean that in the sort of real sense of the word. He's not... He's not um, he doesn't um, attribute our disdain, but there's something almost abject about Dobby in, in the books. There's something yeah. so pitiful and morose um, that it's that, that it's it, there's almost a kind of hairs on the back of your neck affect to to, to, to the to reading the creature. And I don't think that's true of the the cinematic incarnation. There's a much more kind of cutesy, dare I say, almost childlike um, quality um, to to Dobby um, that. I think part might be part of its kind of attractional aesthetic, right? It's it's, it's this effect because essentially it is an effect. Is trying to um, is trying to kind of solicit our our belief or solicit our, our our willingness to kind of infuse these digital sprites with matter through a kind of appeal to our kind of empathy. And I think the characters a lot more um, I don't know rounded off as he comes across in the film. Not to say that he's not interesting and arresting, but, but I, I found him a much more cutesy presence than I remember the Dobby from, from the books being. So if I can go out on a limb yeah. here. <laughs> so, so if what is happening in this period is a sort of deconstruction of childhood, like it's uh-huh. the, you know, deconstructing it, then children themselves see childhood as a museum object. Interesting. In, the day so you i mean i see this with my students and you know my kids like it's like they think of each period in their lives they attach it to a brand or a franchise or when i was a kid there was harry potter we went to the midnight you know book release here in town and and then there was buffy the vampire slayer so in some ways and this thing of speculating for the future with toys it it sets in this thing of nostalgia very early in in our lives because you're already thinking this is going to pass till there's the next franchise or whatever. So I do see in animation in this film and otherwise like 
these old creatures, but they look like children, which like babies initially do look like, like newborns do look sort of old and crinkly and stuff. But, you know, we don't like take pictures of them and we don't sort of our idea of children is like they're sort of cute or like infants. But Dobby, I agree, is this sort of old child. Mm. So what, why though? Why is that though? Is it to, is it to compare against a different kind of childhood embodied by Harry and Ron and who who are sort of ostensibly they're not adults but they they behave because going back to your point about children's rights and and um, children's film and family films being able to show changes and and children not deserving any special treatments yeah. whether or not these films are going well we'll just treat will treat its the child the childishly or the the children who are playing the leads as ostensibly adults and will will use Dobby as a sort of a, a way of negotiating a different kind of childhood. Is that why there's he's portrayed in this way this character? Um, let's take the the term unconscious and from Walter Benjamin the the idea of the optic unconscious that. You know, we can see things which we can't see with the eye, but we're sort of aware of it. That's how I understand it. So like we can't, you know, we don't, we see a seed and we see a flower. We don't see the process in which that happens, but we're aware of it. Somehow it's in our unconscious. I think seeing this kind of old child in children's cinema is that sort of unconscious awareness children are having at this time that they're being pushed to grow up. Okay, so if we're saying that the film is trying to push children to grow up or, or Dobby embodies that that desire or that, that um, kind of uh, unconscious, let's say, it's interesting that there are also two pivotal characters in the film that are engaging with a question of, of childhood versus adulthood, which is Tom Riddle and Moaning Myrtle. So Tom Riddle is, he says later on, you know, that Voldemort is my, like his, his, his past or his, well, his past is his present, I think he says, or something, something to that effect uh, with the reveal that Tom Riddle is, is Voldemort. And then the second is Moaning Myrtle, who um, is a child, well, played by an, an older actress, Shirley Henderson, but he's essentially a child in the film and has been kind of crystallised as such and, and petrified in her own way because she is a ghost who, who, who will not grow up. Um, and so it's interesting that two pivotal characters in the film are sort of connected to, to this idea of children growing up or not growing up or being pushed to grow up or what do they grow up into or, in the case of Myrtle, not growing up at all. So I just wondered if that whether those two characters fit into some of the things that you're saying, um, that childhood itself is being reallocated to lots of different characters, whether it's the th- and ironically probably not the three main characters. It's being it's being presented in, in through Dobby. And it's being presented in these other characters. So I just wondered if if Merton and Tom Riddle fit into some of the things or the conclusions that that we could maybe draw about what the film is saying in relation to childhood. In this film, what I think is again goes counter to that trend. So it's a contradictory film. It uh, text. Uh, it's not just like okay, let's grow, uh, let's speed up the growing up of children. But it, in some ways, mourns it. In some ways, it looks at it. It distances ourselves uh, <laughs> from it. So it has a continuity with the past, which we didn't see with other work in this time f- around children so relationship with parents the other the weasley family you know and then reinventing the past in one way 
which is like the wizards are pure bloods versus like this other uh, idea that Harry represents. Of so it is like also struggling mm. about the past. Um, Tom Riddle, I think, yes, it's this evil, you know, which has this kind of eternal quality uh, of return, mm. and he's uh, then mm. killed with you know, the book disappeared, the book is murdered. So this memory is being destroyed uh, at that moment. Um, but we know he'll, he'll reappear. Morning Myrtle, I find actually this thing of accepting a dead child as normal. Now, like from all of our like childhoods, we know there are all these stories around toilets and bathrooms, right? The, that is something that is old. Uh, but this dead child who whines, who cries, which is accepted mm. to me is, I am conflicted about how to read it because mm. partly it seems like this, okay, you know, children have grown up and their toys are, you know, whatever, talking about their companies. Um, so on the one hand, it seems that's fine, dead children, we just coexist with dead children, which, I mean, the film came out in 2003, not to get too historically, like, not to connected directly but the war against Iraq was uh, you know done at that time there were protests here children were participating in those protests I sort of cite a speech from a 13 year old in my book who says don't think of Iraq as Saddam think about the children there so you're seeing children become active to kind of protect childhood in a way so on the one hand this morning Myrtle is like a dead child who now we accept but on the other hand, it can also distance. It's also scary. Like Hermione doesn't go to that bathroom. She says because there's a ghost over there. So there's something still scary about a dead child. Yeah, there's something. There's something eerie about Moaning Myrtle that isn't true of you know the 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 the, the other ghosts that we we see in the movie of adults. Um, and I wonder if it's yes. as you're saying. I mean. A, a comparative text that's jumping into my mind to compare some of this to is as we're talking about kind of childhood and, and children lamenting their own childhood as the process goes through is, 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 is the class of Peter Pan, which I know sort mm -hmm. of um, Jacqueline Rose in particular, but many others have sort of argued oh, yeah. is a story essentially about ch uh, about people, kids pretending to be kids, right? It's um, Peter, the Lost Boys, they're sort of already not children in the film. You know, the whole thing is about kind of Peter and Wendy's pubescent romance, their emerging sexuality. Um, and what they're doing is a big game where they pretend like they're, 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 they won't grow up, right? That, that, that even, though, even though they sort of already have to the extent that they can recognise that they're no longer kids anymore. The difference is, is that obviously in Peter Pan, that's kind of part of the kind of, you know, British romantic tradition and... And, and and there's an elegy kind of running throughout the whole thing. It's a sort of, you know, um, Dylan Thomas-esque, you know, dying of the light kind of uh, mournful quality. In this, I'm not... I, I, I think the film is very pleased when kids are acting like mm -hmm. adults, right? That's kind of part of the joy of these movies, particularly these kind of early yes. movies, which kind of play like almost kind of like 
famous five murder mysteries in Hogwarts, right? Where where the kids are solving the solving the puzzle that yes. the adults clearly, you know, the kid, the, mm-hmm. Dumbledore hasn't even bothered to ask why this this child ghost is crying has been crying in the toilet for the past. I don't know how you know 60, 70 years she's been in there. The adults don't seem anywhere thing, but the kids because they're better adults than adults can work it out can solve the mystery can uh, can creep down corridors and and pack up lunches and look after themselves and all this kind of stuff so there's a much more kind of by celebratory quality to or 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 to put it another way the normal childhood and I'm using air quotes that the film seems to celebrate is is not childhood is 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 kid is exactly to kind of fit mm-hmm. to your argument that that it's actually it's it's when children are are behaving like adults that they uh, that the film's most pleased with them. Right. And I'm glad you bring up Jacqueline Rose because she talks about how Peter Pan is turned into a children's book by removing yeah. that sort of epilogue where it's a seductive tale being told by a grown-up to a child. And uh-huh. so you just sort of remove that part, um, the foreword or whatever, to turn it into a children's book to fit this century where childhood is being invented and uh, you know it's that golden period of childhood and children are seen as these uh, their only role is to is to play and to study you know they're being uh, and childhood is being imagined as this state but when we are in a period where um, these protections are being taken away from children from like future generations then yeah then you know a text can't help, but it'll maybe mourn it, but it'll also celebrate it. It'll, yeah. mm. uh, my, my question then to throw it is, Alex, you're saying that the, that the film is very pleased at the moments where the children are not being children at all, or let's say they're being adults. Is the are they are they not are they not children who are having to? So the film is reflexive about their process of having to adopt adult qualities because the adults in the film or the protectors in the film are often drawn and painted quite broadly whether it's the weasleys or whether it's the dursleys or um even even draco trying to essentially model himself after his father which is something that really starts to unravel in the or or unfold let's say in the in the next few films um because a lot of it is about a lot of films are about (laughs) dynasty and are about not being like your father or being just like your father and all this sort of stuff so is, is there a sense in the films that that the films themselves are showing adults having to assume the role of of uh, sorry, is, is are the films saying that the the films are showing children, sorry, that are having to adopt adult qualities because they kind of have to, because so rather than them just being adults and and the film or the writers writing them like adults, is there any sort of the way that the adults are presented in the films gives us a sense that the children are kind of having to are being pushed into these roles by the lack of father figures or the lack of parental yeah. figures or the absence of parental. I'm just trying to get my head around whether or not we think the films are, are doing that kind of reflexive work about children having to just assume those roles because because there aren't any or they've never, they, they think this is what being an adult is like. Right. But I think that's where this film is uh, is interesting. So all fairy tales and children's uh, stories have the kid taking care of itself at the end. That's part of growing up and that's the 
the allure or fantasy of uh, narratives for children. What we're seeing in the uh, from the 90s is like what Chris is saying, the adults are incapable of being adults. And so the children have to do it on their own. A film like Jumanji is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. I think what this film shows is both. So the the adult who's incapable of being an adult who does not deserve respect or any love is uh, other Dursleys, that uncle and our Petunia mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I'm forgetting his yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Vernon. Vernon. <laughs> Vernon. Vernon. Yeah, they are yeah. like, you know, they're, they're fat or too thin and they're just, you know, they're, they're very narrow. Their whole goal is to just be upwardly mobile and they can't take care of this child. So the muggles world has these type of adults, whereas I think uh, in Hogwarts, there are, there's a range of adults, mm-hmm. including then adults like for Chambers of Secret. Uh, uh, um, adults like Dumbledore who say, if you stay loyal to me, help will sure, come yeah, yeah. and, you know, they really look up. And even Hagrid, he has this quirk or whatever <laughs> of going for large animals, but it's still an adult you can learn from. So I think this, uh, Harry Potter splits it up, that muggles world, hmm. which is presented to us as the normal world in other films. And then this magic world. Yeah. And part of the magic is that adults do act like adults and children grow up, but not having to kind of also rescue adults because that's another sort of narrative that develops uh, in films like Jumanji where the adult children have to not only end the game, they have to save the adult. Mm-hmm. I-, I was wondering whether that's... Uh... If we think about the the way that the film frames events through childhood that I, that, or or children, that that's where the the film is at its most. That's where I'm. That's when I see Harry and Hermione and Ron as at their most childlike. Is I can I can totally imagine that that's mm. they do see t- teachers as functional. They don't know what the the teachers get up to outside of the classroom. So that's where the that's where the film almost adopts yes. the point of view. And you do get it actually in this film through you know this point of view shots from behind the um, that magical cloak, the invisibility cloak thing yeah. that that you're having a, a view on on the school through the children. So you're discovering teach new teachers and new classes and new spells and all this kind of stuff. But you only ever see them really in the corridors and in the classroom, and that's sort of true to life. Uh, and so they, I don't think that's a criticism mm. of a way that the characters are kind of drawn and and created and represented. That it's just. Maybe it's an also it's just a narrative tool, and then it's very out of functionality comes the economy of yep. Yeah, okay, so we already know the different the different thing. and also you get a lot of teachers in the film getting replaced by even in this film, Gilderoy Lockhart is the new Defense Against the Dark Arts. So there's just roles that these people inhabit. These different roles across every school year that these adults inhabit, and that's presumably how children see it. That, that these are three young three children that are in a classroom that are just learning the subject, but it doesn't necessarily matter by who because the adults just kind of come and go. So I'd not really thought about adults as being this really interesting connection, but also separation between these two worlds. Yes, they're sort of farcical. The Dursleys are farcical in the in the start of the film and the subject of physical comedy in a way that the adults in Hogwarts are definitely not. Um, but there's there's sort of more, t- more to it, the way that the film, through the 
child's mm. I don't think it's subjectivity but certainly an allegiance to the children who are often in who are often in every scene mm. as well that they have to there's a way there's a way which of course that's how the film paints teachers because they only ever see them in term time and often the films end with them leaving and going back for the holidays and all that kind of stuff so yeah, I think adults are a really interesting point of connection. That I'd not really Should we talk about the, the flying car? Because I feel like that was something you flagged up, Chris, in the introduction you, you wanted to get to. And, and it yeah. seems to bring a lot of some of these threads yeah. that we're, we're, we're pulling out here together in that, you know. Uh, well, Chris, you talk to me about the car and we'll see where, what, what the three of us do with it. <clears throat> well, I, I suppose... <laughs> when I talk about the car, what I really want to talk about is is King's Cross, and I've always found it interesting that 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 the the departure of Hogwarts, the Hogwarts Express, is at King's Cross, and I run a project with my students about the redevelopment of King's Cross. Um, that it's prior to the, when the film. So this this book comes out, I think, in 1998, and then the film is a, is a few years later. So this is a time when the whole area of King's Cross is being regenerated. You have um, the transformation of its industrial history into a vibrant city quarter. London Canal Museum opens in 92. British Library opens in 1997. Um, Guardian and Observer uh, newspaper headquarters uh, moved to the area. Um, at the time, the British Library was the largest pu public um, building constructed in the UK across the 20th century. You then have the development of King's Cross as the area. So King's Cross, this transformation of 65 acres of former railway lands sure. into um, King's Cross Central. So this new, expansive, modern, um, it was badged as the King's Cross Opportunity Area. The King's Cross Development Forum was set up at this time that allowed kind of local communities to, to sort of, who lived, in work, who lived and worked in Camden and Islington to kind of contribute to the development process. Now, since then, there's been a lot of writing around whether this was, a, who, who was this a renaissance for? But I think if you visit the area now, you will see it looks, in fact, it looks very different to how it used to look in the 70s and 80s where a lot of films w w about the area, it was too dangerous to film there, so they had to film elsewhere. So there are films, Mona Lisa is a good example, starring Bob Hoskins, that is about King's Cross and the Red Light District, but it, it was too dangerous to film there, so they filmed somewhere else. So it's kind of e exemplifying the very it, it's kind of social issue that it's, it's kind of talking about. So the area was connected to decay and, and so forth. Now, part of its regeneration comes through travel and the fact that King's Cross is now this centre of, of international connection because Eurostar moves from Waterloo up to King's Cross, but it's also the tube line with the most... Sorry, it's, it's the station with the most tube line connections. So it's always been this trait. So it makes perfect sense that Hogwarts would leave from there because everything leaves from there. That's your oh. entrance into London from, from abroad. Um, so you get off the Eurostar and that's where you land. It's 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 the place where you often go up north. It's the I get the high speed service down to Kent from King's Cross. So it makes perfect sense that King's Cross St Pancras would be this area where where Harry Potter is is departing from. But as you alluded to earlier on, like it's it's now an area that's become a tourist attraction. So you go there to have your picture taken in front of Platform Nine Three Quarters, which isn't where it was in the film which is between platforms three and four it's actually um there's a a, a gate sorry a, a, a trolley that's half in the wall that you can have your picture taken so the students are, are interested in this area because it's not just a train station where you transit through it's now a destination in and of itself and harry potter is an absolute conversation with that and this film in particular because you have you have the repeated mm -hmm. spectacle of them trying to get through the wall and they can't 
can't do it because mm-hmm. uh, the portal is yeah. closed. But you have the flying car. You have the flying car that, that ironically, because King's Cross hadn't quite been developed yet, the exterior of King's Cross is St Pancras in the film. And they are, even though they're different stations, we hadn't got to the point where King's Cross Central was the fancy, <laughs> shiny, um, concrete jungle. Um, smooth, I would say, concrete jungle. Not the, the nice modern version of concrete jungle where all the designs are trying to evoke these gas cylinders. It didn't quite look like that yet. So they ironically had to shoot all that footage of the car flying outside of St Pancras rather than King's Cross. So I'm really interested in this, in this area and what these films sort of did for the mm. commerce of King's Cross St Pancras as part of its redevelopment, but also how the Harry Potter films are kind of central to its the station's transformation and not just a place that you move through. Um, there are very mm. few seats around because you don't spend time there. You move through it to get from one place to another. But but now, because of Harry Potter, mm. it's, a, it's a destination. Um, <laughs> so that's what I'd like to say about the flying car, which wasn't really about the flying car at all, but it's sort of this symbol of... of 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 course magic happens at King's Cross because that's your entrance into the country and it's the place where you you make your connection and you 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 want to go there and obviously this has only increased because of the film since then so um and it's just cool because it's a flying car that's what I've all that's the other thing I'd like to say about it <laughs> <laughs> I guess it links it links to this other aspect of commercialization we talked of commercialization yeah. of product but but actually uh-huh. we, we could talk about it in terms of space so, you know the if 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 what you're saying is right, Chris, and uh, uh, as a fellow Londoner, I'm inclined to agree with you. Uh, and I can think of other spaces um, that the film commercialises, both you know real spaces in you know they're, they're equally. There are lots of cathedrals around the country that are now visited yep. by more tourists. Um, is it York with the with the, it has a shot of Diagon Alley? Gloucester. And then if yep. you go around York these days, it's full of full of Harry Potter shops and things like that. So there's the commercialization of real spaces, and then there's also the kind of creation or the realization of fictional spaces in things like the the Hogsmeade in in the Harry Potter tour, or which happens here. Or mm. indeed, in, in in the states where there's you know Harry Potter world and things like that. So, yeah, do we have anything to say about the kind of that aspect of of this film's appeal? Heritage, maybe this idea is sort of it, it, the Harry Potter films are very good at using space like heritage spaces, um, and I don't know what that says about yeah. the. There's this kind of push pull in the films between a lot of it is green screen and and that's part of its pleasure, of course. But they, there's a lot of the rhetoric around the films, which is. Um, Hogwarts is this composite of Gloucester Cathedral and this space and this courtyard and this so they're trying to kind of use English heritage British heritage you know this whole narrative of casting British actors um, only having British directors after a certain point and all the all the sorts of Britishness that gets folded into Harry Potter as this as, as now heritage so I don't I don't really know what I mean by heritage but I just yeah. wonder whether the films are using I mean, heritage I'll, in a particular I'll, way I'll throw I'd throw in childhood again to use our sort of keyword of the thing. And another thing you're talking about is that, you know, King's Cross is now populated by this is the real King's Cross. It's now populated by two people usually or two demographics. There's busy, uh, frantic commuters trying to get to their train yep. home uh, from 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 the city, and families uh, queuing up to go to, that, to Harry Potter. So I wonder yeah. if there's also that element where where spa- the the adult world is is claimed as spaces for. For, for childhood yeah. commercialization again. Right. And I think the whole Britishness uh, is very much part of uh, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the construction of the Harry Potter series. It's uh, 
um, you know, it's just calling on this imperial imagination of, you know, and mm. British children's literature, like, is this some, it, it's almost magical uh, already uh, because it, it represents, yeah, there's this, uh, yeah, fascination with British childhood, right? It, and it could be also because they, what, is considered children's literature that golden age comes from Britain where you know you have the industrial revolution so things like secret mm -hmm. garden and the velveteen rabbits like many of the peter pan mm -hmm. like many of these classics uh of childhood are set in mm -hmm. Britain and so there's this kind of appeal uh to it but I think mm -hmm. what uh, it's also significant that act that spaces get tied to films rather than their history the history of you know what king's cross would be and so it yeah. is this kind of flattening of sure. space and and so you're yeah. going there now to see the harry potter not like what it was earlier and so uh, space then seems totally malleable you can make it to be whatever it is well, well, li I mean, literally, just as a kind of literal example of that, that the, the, what Chris is talking about with the platform nine and three quarters, well, it's not even a platform anymore. It's Wall. just a sort of space in the foyer. So there's not even a platform, and yet, and yet people are queuing and taking their photo. So, of course, it's fictional. It's not even a platform when there are clearly platforms in this station, and yet people are, are, are able, with their yeah. imagination, to, to, to make a wall malleable enough for it to be a photo opportunity. Um, I think there's something to that. It's the logic of the staircases in the castle that keep um, moving. If, you know, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, a, I had a question about just coming off of your point about British childhood. And I was going to ask about whether actually this is you know, I was actually going to ask about white British childhood uh, because I think the film, what the film does yes. really interestingly, there was there's one shot of I think of a black student in the, in almost mm -hmm. the entire film um but but right. also the whole conversation around around essentially mixed race identity because they're talking about um uh, mud bloods they're talking about pure bloods and we i think this came up when we did um sorcerer slash mm. philosopher's stone but and, and got the categories wrong because we were not as well versed in the harry potter lore <laughs> as we were at the time but um i i thought that scene was interesting because one it's sort of doing race without being explicit maybe this goes back to this idea of yeah. optic unconscious about difference and about heritage and genealogy yeah. but it's also i mm -hmm. thought the whole scene was really downplayed because at the same time you've got ron vomiting up slugs so you've got this really interesting conversation about mixed race identity um if if to, to be to, to paint it with a very broad brush yeah. but it feels like that's what it's, it's talking about um against mm -hmm. the backdrop of a scene set inside hagrid's hut where he's Ron spewing up mm. these, and I don't know whether that sort of download, down, um, diluted some of the power of the of the scene. But I thought there were some really interesting conversations, and Hermione looks quite upset by this. Um, but then it's mm -hmm. also again in a film that's very in a franchise that's very very white um, and uses and uses darkness in very particular ways. Actually, um, Dementors, all those, all these, the way that darkness it become, and the films become darker as well as in terms of lighting and, and tone and stuff like this. So I just wondered if there was anything to say about the way that the film sort of does or does not do race with that on through that conversation of mudbloods. Right, I don't, I, I really don't think it's conscious about race at all, no. and I, uh, I think it just 
it has a white mindset. It just thinks about like yeah, in that sense. Like it doesn't think about the politics of race. So it's thinking about wizards and witches, but the language that is being used is very racialized. But I don't know, you know, if Rolling kind of understands that and it's true and there's just one black character and then there's Parvati Patel like these two who are just you know and then she becomes the love and I always thought maybe it was because of criticism that they got and they wanted this kind of global market right and so then they put these characters uh in in the film but there is in the there is this character called Cho Chang yeah to an Asian person, it just sounds like a ridiculous yeah. name. Like, you know, you just came up with an oriental sounding name and you created a yeah, character yeah. like that. So, yeah, I, I think it's a very, it's a, it's a white imagination. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's narrower than that. It's not just white. It's, it's, it's middle class whiteness. So, and yeah. it's, and, and actually to get yes. localized in terms of Englishness, it's, it's southern kind of, it's basically Surrey. Uh, um, yeah. you know, uh, you know, you know, just outside London, commuter belt, wealthy, uh, green pasture, whiteness, because there's no, there's not even any sort of, you know, it, Chris, you say, of course it goes from King's Cross. I suspect, um, you could also argue, of course it goes from King's Cross because all infrastructure in this country goes from London. Uh, like, you know, there's, there's, there's no Northern people. There's no working class people. I guess Ron, Ron Weasley, yeah. the Weasleys are the best gesture we've got, but actually they seem to live in ex- this relatively idyllic kind of rural cottage that's a little yeah. bit higgledy-pickledy and they have to <laughs> hand me down some robes, but it's, there doesn't seem to be... There, there's... Economics is an inconvenience, but it's not a it's not a hardship necessarily. They have to have to endure. Yeah. So it's 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 narrower than that. And then and then you're right. But we get these extremely racially charged terms that seem to be drawing sort of more on kind of the legacy of kind of 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 Holocaust and 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 World War Two and anti-Semitism, which again, mm-hmm. in terms of Britishness, has a certain. Um, I don't know what the right term is uh, to be careful with my language, but but there's a certain um, distancing that immediately goes into that, right? In the in the part of the British national yeah. myth is is that we're the heroes in in this story of racial oppression. So um, yes, it is extremely narrow in its focus, um, and I and I and I think mm-hmm. these first two movies, in particular, in a franchise that doesn't get much better as it goes along but but it, hmm. but but uh yeah yeah, yeah 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 i have i only have two things to say one and this will definitely get cut but someone <laughs> i went to university with and did my did my undergraduate degree got down to the last two for cho chang that's my okay that's my um little factoid <laughs> oh there is um, just but yeah fine um and the, i suppose the the second thing is is that I, I i actually agree i had not thought that it's very it's almost too easy to transplant mudbloods or discussion of mudbloods onto race because that gives yeah. the film a bit of kind of credit well actually what the film ends up doing is making of making whiteness the victim again mm-hmm. because because Hermione is the victim of this so it would it mm-hmm. would be a I see what you mean. This kind of, I guess, what D'Angelo would call a sort of white racial frame here, where everything is being understood through its effect on on whiteness. So actually, it uses a very racialized language, but that doesn't mean it's conscious mm-hmm. about it's color color conscious. It's using using racial 
language to talk about difference because that's often how we talk about difference right that's that's the biggest way that people are different from us so it makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. that the film would use that language to signal difference even if the outcome is that there's a white victim here where Hermione is is really put out by this this challenge to her or this unveiling of her genealogy um Mm -hmm. so it can use racial language or racialized language without saying absolutely anything meaningful about race because as we know the franchise doesn't because it calls its characters Cho Chang <laughs> but there we go <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're, I think we're about out of time which yeah. is a real shame because I think there's so much more we could say about uh, yeah. the, the film and the film actually just to say because we've been quite um, um, down on it and, and, and I think for lots of very important reasons but actually I must say the film struck me as a lot darker and a lot more mature than I remember it being particularly in comparison with the first movie there is a sort of foreboding tension that's very well handled in the film that we haven't really um, dealt with in that kind of you know the murder plot of all this kind of the, the scary chamber of secrets but perhaps another time and another another episode um, uh, just uh, um, w- what are you working on right now? Are there any projects you can tell us about or any um, uh, uh, articles, ideas, thoughts percolating that you might want to hear about? Um... So I've just uh, finished a piece that's coming out uh, in a philosophy journal called The Acorn. And uh, this is on... Um, on uh, Janusz Korczak, who is a Polish Jewish communist who was also a pediatrician. He's the person who writes the first Children's uh, Bill of Rights in 1920s. But then he got, got pushed into the Warsaw Ghetto when he ends up taking care of 200 children in his orphanage and then is led to the concentration camp and, you know, and dies with the children. Um, or murdered, is murdered with the children. But they perform a play by Rabindranath Tagore, who's an Indian uh, writer, and the play is called Post Office, and they perform that play in the, the ghetto. And I was just, and so what we have about that performance are just notes from uh, Korchak's diary or uh, a little like some people describing it. And so I was just reimagining why he chose that play and uh, how it may have resonated in that space. Uh, and I think it is dealing with this, how, how do you yeah. prepare children mm-hmm. for death? Just sort of this question that Korchak is asking. And I think in choosing a play from another time and another place, He's in a way showing to children that, you know, you're part of this continuity. You will not be forgotten. I mean, the lines in the play, which are about, you will not be forgotten. We'll not forget you. So how art can in a way help because it is the label of, uh, of humans uh, mm. and it can keep your memory. Really interesting. So. That's what that sounds really interesting. Today, and actually, yeah. I mean, uh, just to sort of link back to what we've been talking about, we, we didn't talk about death. And of course, death is another thing we mm-hmm. could talk about in relationships with how this film engages with childhood because it's very interested in that. But that sounds like an extremely interesting film. And that's out in, that's out in um, did you say it's in the uh, uh, Philosophy Journal? It's, uh, yes, it's okay. called Acorn. It should be okay. coming out soon. It's just 
in the publishing okay. all right well listeners, right? listeners in the future do check it out um i'm sure it's a, a fascinating article i'm looking forward to reading it um and thank you so much for, for your time today and for joining us on the show to chat about chamber of secrets no thank you i learned a lot just talking with <laughs> you both it's great Dito, thank Dito. you we won't edit that out we'll keep we'll keep that bit in we'll, alex we'll keep that yeah bit oh no yeah, won't cut that out absolutely that's staying in um all the stuff about our own egos that's staying in that's the message we've learned from our conversation today um no thank you very much um really appreciate it and it, and and the franchise will continue and we'll we'll do more in future episodes um you can follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at fan and in research f-a-n-a-n-i-m research you can also find our back catalog of podcasts and uh blogs at fantasy-animation.org um do check us out uh, and by all means listen to philosopher's stone if you're completely lost in the franchise already go back start again and we'll see you for episode three prisoner of azkaban otherwise take care and we'll see you next time bye